Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today, I have an interview with screenwriters David and Janet Peebles. David Peebles wrote Blade Runner and Unforgiven. Together, Mr. and Mrs. Peebles co-wrote the screenplay for 12 Monkeys. 12 Monkeys will be shown Saturday, June 8th, 2019 at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street in the main auditorium. More later, on to the interview. On the Blade Runner audio commentary, you stated all screenwriters bungee jump from dusk to dawn. And could you discuss what you meant by this? And while writing 12 Monkeys, Miss Peebles, did you make the jump too? I don't remember saying that about bungee jumping. That doesn't sound... Where did you get that? Well, it was on the Blade Runner. Hampton Fanchner was talking about you hadn't bungee jumped to see the whole scope of the movie, and you said all screenwriters bungee jump from dusk to dawn. Okay, well, I say I don't quite remember that. I remember Hampton fine, but I, I don't remember that statement. But at any rate, we do what we do. I, I Bungee jumping... It's a metaphor. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's the right one. Anyway, I don't know quite how to answer that. Okay. I'm curious, how did 12 Monkeys originate, meaning who came up with the idea of taking Chris Marker's short movie, La Jate, and turning it into a feature film? Actually, that was a producer named Bob Cosberg, and he had partnered with a producer who we had worked with and liked a lot named Chuck Roven, who's a very, very prominent and important producer in the business now. He's gone on to do the Batmans and all those big pictures. And Chuck asked us to look at La Jete, and the irony, of course, is that when La Jete came out, Janet and I were young parents, and we weren't getting to see all the movies we wanted to see and that was a movie we missed. And we'd heard about it for years and how wonderful it was, but we'd never seen it. So Bob Cosberg sent us kind of a crude dub of it, a video dub, and we were knocked out by the movie. But we said, well, you know, what are you going to do? This is a perfect movie. It's, uh, what, 25, 30 minutes, whatever it was, in French. It's a short. It is terrific. And what's the point here? We... The only Hollywood movie you could make out of it would be something like Terminator, and Terminator's already been made, and Terminator's a masterpiece, and we wouldn't try to make something that was a cheap knockoff of a masterpiece, so forget it. Then the story goes on from there, Jan. Do you remember how we proceeded? Well, we had said we weren't interested in doing it, and they said, well, come on, you guys. How would you do it if you had to do a movie and... We had a system back then in those days that we said, what if somebody kidnapped our kids and said we had to come up with a story? And so we came up with a story very quickly, and David came up with the brilliant idea of the animals. And then we went back and said, all right, well, this is what we'd do. And then we told them the story that we would do. You know, first off, when we got the animals, we, we, I mean, the whole thing about another Holocaust movie was just unthinkable. And with so much, you know, a ripoff of things like Terminator and stuff, that wouldn't be thinkable. But when we thought, oh, wait a minute, now the relevant thing today is germs, et cetera, et cetera, and we had that idea. And we also 
were thinking, well, we got this prisoner, right, and so on, and it occurred to us that we live in Berkeley, which is not just a normal town, I don't think, and you run into people in Berkeley who are going to say something like, I come from the future, the world is going to turn, and you, you ignore them because, of course, they're crazy, but it occurred to us, well, what if they don't know they're crazy, they think they come from the future, what if we took told the story from the point of view somebody's convinced he was a prisoner in the future. And then we got into the idea, well, there's this psychiatrist, and he persuades her that he's from the future, even though she's obviously reluctant to believe that. In the meantime, he, she persuades him he's crazy. So we, we, were in, we began to enjoy what we'd come up with. But then there were a whole series of events involving persuading Chris Marker and so on and so forth. But that's how we came to end up writing 12 Monkeys. In 12 Monkeys, you were talking about, um, well, there is a theme of madness and sanity and how two the closely are related. And when you wrote the script, what was the attraction to that theme? Both of us had worked in mental hospitals, the same mental hospital, actually, although not at the same time, when we were young. And one of the things when we were talking about our experiences there that had struck both of us was that we'd be in there with the patients. And, of course, when you're committed to a mental hospital, usually you're committed for one incident. You threw all everybody's clothes out the window and screamed and yelled and did something, and they put you away for a while. But the patients in their daily routines, and as you met them each day, were not that different from the people on the outside. And I remember I'd go home and sit with my family and notice how they would fuss with a cup or do something and realize, gosh, it's just plain not that different, the people who are in a mental institution and the people who aren't in ordinary, everyday behavior. And we even both recalled where at the staff meeting, which we used in 12 Monkeys, that the doctors, (laughs) a doctor would do something like ask what the day was, right? They'd say, well, it's another doctor would say, well, it's Thursday. Okay, so they bring in the patient, and then they ask the patient. And if he doesn't know what day it is, they think it's a sign of his mental problems, and yet they have the same one. So we were struck perpetually with the thin line between what gets you committed to a mental hospital and what doesn't, and what are the differences in your daily life and your behaviors. The other thing was we really enjoyed the idea that If, in fact, our hero was telling the truth, and if, in fact, these people had come back over the years, then maybe all of history that we know they had been part of. And David and I have always been very, very interested in the book of Revelations. And we were thinking of all the things that it told. What if this came from the future? And so we just had a lot of fun with 12 Monkeys. We got to put a whole bunch of stuff into it that was just fun for us, including one of the characters, Jeffrey, who kind of this idiot. I had written a script about a very, very dysfunctional eco-terrorist up in Oregon who made some terrible mistakes. And David had said at one point, you know, I think that's our Jeffrey, so we kind of took him from one of our other old scripts. So one does that. Yeah. 
and also we, we included, uh, because we loved Chris Marker, once we met Chris Marker and everything, and he was just a wonderful, wonderful man, and so supportive of us and everything, and we kept putting in more and more of his totems, because he, he puts in his films emus and owls and all of that stuff, and so we were inserting, and the cats, he loved cats, so we were inserting stuff that were homages to Chris and who he was and everything, as well as, you know, putting in things that were actually in La Jete, such as the business from the only Hollywood movie he liked was, uh, what's the name of it? The Hitchcock film. Vertigo. Vertigo, exactly, yeah. which is not a favorite of ours. But Chris loved it. He thought it was the only good movie Hollywood had ever made. So we certainly... Use that. Yeah. While you're on the topic of Chris Marker, who was the director of La Chate, he stated he couldn't believe the script had been developed in a Hollywood system and snuck through. And how did you sneak it through? I don't think that that's as much to our credit. I mean, the real ultimate producer on the picture, Chuck Rovin, was remarkable. And when Chris said that he was not going to meet with a bunch of lawyers and sign the permission away, he'd give them permission, but he wasn't going to do it. Chris wrote something on a napkin, and somehow Chuck got Universal to take Chris's note on a napkin seriously, because Chris hated lawyers. He called them priests. And he thought he, they hated, were, he hated lawyers and psychiatrists. And priests, <laughs> right? And he called psychiatrists and lawyers were American priests. So at any rate, he was stubborn about that, but Chuck Rovin is a great producer. Not only that, Universal had a terrible battle with Terry Gilliam over uh, Brazil, and Chuck managed to get Universal to accept Terry Gilliam as the director and to make that work. And so the way that this remarkable movie came about was Chuck Rovin doing what great producers do and facing all of these problems, like Chris Marker not being willing to deal with lawyers and Universal being pretty reluctant to deal with Terry Gilliam, and Terry Gilliam just as bristly as always about Universal. And somehow Chuck Rovin made this work and uh, got the cast and made it all happen. And to be fair, Casey Silver, the uh, executive. executive at Universal, along with a couple of other executives, Barry Isaacson and the great producer now did The Hunger Games. Uh, her name is escaping me at the moment, but she's a wonderful producer. Anyway, those three people on Universal's staff, it all came together very well, but it was remarkable because, as Chris points out, it's not something you would expect. And to be fair, Bruce Willis taking that job when it wasn't the twenty million dollars he was expecting he would expect normally to receive, good for him. Okay. What did you talking about Terry Gilliam? What did Terry Gilliam bring to your script? Well, the main thing is this is the key when you're working in the movies. When you're a writer and you're not a writer-director. If you're a writer-director, that's no problem, because James Cameron, when he writes a script, he gets it, right? He knows what it's going to look like and what it's supposed to look like. But when you write independently as writers, you pray that somebody will get your script. That is to say, not just understand the words or something, but get the vision, get the picture, get the idea. And Terry Gilliam immediately did. I mean, we shared a love... Terry and ourselves of the absurd, and Terry immediately got the script. And the wonderful thing about Terry is that there are other visionary directors who create great images and great worlds and all that. 
few of them are as good storytellers as Terry is. And the flaws of the script to 12 Monkeys were that it was very complicated. And most directors would have lost the thread and the story, not Terry. He was magnificent. He understood it all. And when he changed something, he did it for the better. I mean, that angel in the department store is all him. And moving it to Christmas time and, and all of that stuff, that was all Terry Gilliam. And just, just brilliant. But to his credit, he didn't mess with the story. And he understood the story, and he made it work. And we're just in awe of him. Okay. David, you made the statement while writing Unforgiven that the movie Taxi Driver and the novel The Shootist were an influence on you and David and Janet. For the both of you, besides the short film La Jatay, were there any inspirations while writing Twelve Monkeys? Okay, on the writing Twelve Monkeys, other inspirations. I mean, it was largely Chris Marker's work, and I think we both liked a lot of movies about sanity and insanity. I don't know if you've ever seen the wonderful movie, the Sherlock Holmes movie, with the guy who was in Patton. Uh, George C. Scott. Oh, they might be giants. Yes, they might be giants. Now, movies like that have always been favorites of ours that mess around with sanity and insanity and reality and unreality and everything. And that, for, for example, good for you for knowing they might be giants. At any rate... I'm not going to say specifically that was an inspiration, but we've liked movies like that before, so those are part of our of who we are and so on. So I think that there are many things like that that sort of inspired us. I mean, another thing I loved when I was a little kid, and I think Jan did too, Harvey with Jimmy Stewart. So just the relationships between madness and real life had always been an interesting topic for both of us. We we answered that one, but you said something about Unforgiven, and I'm... Well, it was just, that was when you were writing Unforgiven, that you said that the movie uh, Taxi Driver and the novel The Shootist were an influence on you, and I was just curious about, was there anything that was influencing you two when you were writing Twelve Monkeys? Just La Jetée. Okay, all righty. And uh, 12 Monkeys was set in Baltimore and Philadelphia, and according to the audio commentary, Terry Gilliam stated that you two had never been to Baltimore or Philadelphia. My question is, why did you make that a location? Well, actually, we had been there. I don't know why Terry said that. He just didn't know that. Is that right? Yeah. We all went to Independence Hall and everything when we were kids. I don't think I did, but I might have. Oh, I'm sure you did, David. But, I doubt it, but but Janet certainly was there, but I wasn't. We put it we we put it there because Pennsylvania has all of those mine shafts. It was a coal mining area, and also my best friend had moved to Princeton, New Jersey, which is just up the road, and I wanted to see her. <laughs> and another thing is, we were looking for two cities that were conveniently close. Mm, okay. Going back earlier to your careers, you two have worked on documentaries like Who Are the DeBolts and Why Do They Have 19 Kids and The Day After Trinity. And I recently watched a segment on CBS this morning about how we're in a golden age of documentary filmmaking. I just want your opinion on this. What do you think? Is this a, age of, a golden age of documentaries? Shockingly. Did yes. you, did you want to, yeah, I, mean, I was going to say, don't forget, this is also an era 
in which people are very, very interested in reality shows, reality television, and documentaries are just kind of, kind of looking, another way of looking at what's going on today. Yeah, when we were coming up, there was a wonderful surge of documentaries in the early 60s and so on. And then later we worked on Day After Trinity and the Bolts and stuff. But documentaries were taking a beating a little after that, and it seemed like the documentary business was going away until things like Netflix and everything came along, and all of a sudden documentaries are blossoming again, and it's a wonderful time. There are great documentaries out there. And... uh and some of the film schools now, as at Stanford, for example, they just do. They just teach documentaries and documentary filmmaking. By the way, a lot of a lot of documentaries and these golden ages come from funding. In the '60s, all of a sudden, the government provided funding to make documentaries. So that was one of the reasons. And also, it was the beginning of the public television networks stations in this country, and they were doing documentaries, too. Right. I worked on the documentary that later was used, or a lot of it was used in I Am Not Your Negro. There was a documentary uh, we made in San Francisco. When I say we, I was just an assistant cameraman, but it was called Take This Hammer, and it was James Baldwin visiting San Francisco around 1960 or 62. So anyway, the documentary thing flourished and then seemed to go away, disappointingly, and now has come back. And we just we love the documentaries that are being made now. They're so exciting and so different and everything. So, you know, that's a good point. You sure have done your homework, William. You, know, you well, seem to know everything. Okay. I try. <laughs> um, okay, well, you do well. Thank you. Paul Anderson, the director of Soldier, stated that you write characters that are looking for humanity. Do you agree with that statement? And if you don't agree, what are your characters looking for? I don't disagree with the statement. I just, yeah, I think that's a fair thing, that they're finding, they're struggling with themselves, is I guess what I would say, and struggling with who they are and how to get through life and to be who they are. And so I think that's a fair statement. He said that well. I think that one of the things that both David and I are very interested in is why good people do bad things and why bad people often do good things. I mean, if you get that, you've got character and you've got story right away. Exactly. Hmm. Okay. And once again, I was listening to audio commentary of Blade Runner and you and Hampton Fanchner had got into this discussion whether there was a version of the script that Deckard kills Beatty, and you stated you were going to look into that, and I'm curious, did you look into it, and was there a script where Deckard kills the replicant Beatty? I'm pretty sure there was, but I did not go research it. I was not that eager to prove Hampton wrong. I think he misremembered that that was the script that when I came on the job, that's what, what happened. Okay. Did you see Blade Runner 2049, and what did you think? I did see it, and I thought it was a remarkably good job. Like the original Blade Runner was far from perfect, and the 2049 was also far from perfect, and I think it was a very difficult thing to be following Ridley, and nobody could top what Ridley did in the world he saw and the vision he did, but I think that the Blade Runner 2049 was a damn good try and 
in many cases. It was just wonderful. It was full of wonderful, wonderful stuff. Some really good writing, some great scenes, and Dennis Gastner, his art direction just blew me away. But again, they were making a picture in a totally different environment than Ridley made Blade Runner, who made it without a single CGI in the whole film. And I think it was good. I'm glad I saw it. I'll watch it again, but that's about all I can say. Okay. Back, well, to Unforgiven, when Clint Eastwood directed your script for Unforgiven, he was deeply influenced by contemporary Los Angeles in the early 90s. He even told Gene Hackman to study uh, Daryl Gates of the Los Angeles Police Department. But you wrote the script in the 1970s. Was anything happening in society that affected you while you were writing this unforgiven script? Absolutely. I wasn't... uh... I didn't know that about about Gene Hackman and Daryl Gates. Boy, was Gene Hackman great in the movie, just great. At any rate, I was actually thinking about the environment up here, where especially the city of Oakland, which was a city full of working people. They were boilermakers and, and plumbers and all sorts of working-class people, which is basically what a cowboy is. A cowboy is a skilled working-class person. And then they were also had a tremendous drug culture that was the criminals and the hard guys. And then there was this police department trying to deal with all of this. And so I very much based Little Bill on the idea of what a law officer is obliged to do, which is try to minimize the violence and try and keep the place safe for little kids to go to school and that sort of thing. And so I saw Little Bill as a character taking on that drama. I, uh, Bill Gates is a little extreme because Bill Gates does not sit well, but I saw little Bill as basically a decent man on many levels. That changed a little because we see him whip a black man, and that is an ugly thing indeed, but when I wrote it originally, that character wasn't black. So at any rate, things changed a little bit in it, but Clint was not wrong to see him as a modern cop. Okay. You wrote and directed a movie called The Blood of Heroes, and you invented a sport called Jugger, and because of the movie, the sport is caught on in several countries. Could you talk about you creating the sport Jugger? <laughs> well, you do good research, William. I, anyway, it's kind of thrilling and weird to me that I remember, when, let's see, I wrote Jugger in the 70s sometime. I didn't make it till what, 80-something, but at any rate, I wrote it in the 70s. At the time, it would have been a pretty amazing movie. In a lot of ways, I was inspired by the makeup in Rocky, just the idea that you could have these people look that way. At any rate, the sport itself, I remember writing it and being very meticulous about it and caring about it and the stuff, but then when I directed the movie, I sort of realized that even though I'd written it all, it was going to have to be translated into real-life action, and that was the great stunt director. He's also a movie director, but the great Guy Norris just magnificently put the whole thing together and made it happen, and God bless him. I mean, he choreographed it, made it work. He was, you know, he paid all the attention to the rules and everything about it, and he just uh, brought it to life, and that was thrilling to see at the time, but then it was shocking Years later, as I would learn that people were actually playing it in different places, and I'd look on YouTube and see all this stuff, and then there was a team in Berkeley, and they contacted me, and I got to see them play and all that. So 
it was a very strange experience to think of me sitting all alone in this little room back in the 70s thinking this stuff up and years later to see that there was a tournament in Berlin. So it was a remarkable experience. It remains amazing to both Janet and myself. To us as writers, writers are really not known so that when we go out on the street, people don't say, oh, you're a writer, right? We got invited to go to one of the Jugger games, and David had already gone ahead. I think I was parking the car or something, and so I'm, I'm walking across this large field, and this young man says, um, excuse me, are, are, you, are you lost? And I said, no, I'm going over there. And he said, they're playing a very interesting game. Perhaps you'd like to know a little bit about it. And I said, oh, I think I can follow it, right? And then he said, no, please, let me explain it to you because you'll never, never understand it. And I said, actually, my husband designed the game. He said, your husband? Your husband is David Peoples? Right? <laughs> it's like, it was a fabulous instant, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and that's, that seems to be happening more where people's, people get in touch with us because of the jugger game. They think, this, is, this is funny. It's kind of fun to be old and have things like that happen. Oh. Going back, when you were a film editor, um, you were one of the three film editors on a movie called Dr. Dracula, co-directed by prolific director, B-grade horror filmmaker Al Adamson. And any memories of working with Mr. Adamson? None of this rings any bell. I'm not aware of having done that. That's just some strange Internet stuff. Or, as sometimes happens, I did work on a weird film, but it had nothing to do with anybody named Adamson. I mean, that may be a pseudonym. I have no... I'm not aware of the film you're talking about. It's not impossible that it's a reincarnation of something else. One time, Janet and I had the flu, and this was many years ago, and in those days, we didn't really watch television, especially not in the daytime. Now we watch television at night all the time because of the change in television and cable shows, but back then we didn't, but we were so sick. We were just lying in the bed, and I was surfing from channel to channel, and I'd surf, and we'd see some little snippet of something and I'd move on because it was all boring and stupid and game shows and weird soap operas and stuff like that and there was some low budget awfully looking movie that looked like the director and the cinematographer spoke different languages because the framing was so awful and I hung on it for a few minutes and Janet said aren't you going to change the channel and I said actually I think I might have written this And sure enough, it was a film I'd written for a guy in Australia that had then been shot in Europe, and he'd taken the script, and the Aborigines had become gypsies with no changes whatsoever. And it was one of the (laughs) strangest, weirdest things with a title on it that had nothing to do with anything I'd heard of. So this stuff just floats around out there. And the film you just asked about, I know nothing about. Interesting. Well, this could be, let me ask it anyway, according to Internet Movie Database, uh, the two of you are writing a script called Mandrake the Magician. Is there any truth to this? Or if it's not true, what are you two working on now? 
Oh, well, let's, let's jump to Mandrake. We did do a draft of Mandrake for uh, that wonderful producer who we mentioned before, Chuck Robin, but he was unable to get it made. It and, still uh, is down as they're working to find right. a director. Uh, you know, maybe who they're knows? rewriting it, maybe. But at any rate, we certainly did do a draft we're very proud of. We thought it was a pretty terrific script, but it didn't go forward, as so many don't. So that answers that. Now, in terms of what we're working on now, we're not really working. We're semi-retired, but we did do some work on a a TV series, a a cable kind of series, that's for a man named Bill Haber that's based on a Stephen King story about outer space. And that's, I think, about all we can say about it because it's, you know, it may or may not ever come to pass as so many things. I mean, we've got many, many scripts out there that have never been made, like Mandrake and others. And so far, that's one of them, although we can always hope it'll get made. Okay. Just out of curiosity, I was watching Soldier, and there's that scene where he gets dumped on the trash planet. And there's also, I read, there's a, you were talking about borrowing from scripts earlier. Was that an idea that you used in Blade Runner that wasn't used, like the replicants were dumped on a planet? Did you just borrow it from uh, Blade Runner? <laughs> no. Well, it's a complicated. I wasn't aware that I borrowed it, but maybe I did, because you always do things. I did write a scene for Blade Runner where Batty wakes up in this pile of discarded replicant bodies, and the storyboard artist Sherman Lobby, he's dead now, but what a great storyboard artist he was, what an artist he was. I still have a frame that he wrote of that scene of all these bodies piled up and Batty appearing, and I have it on my wall downstairs. So I did write that scene, and it didn't make it into the movie. Later, when I wrote Soldier, and I have to tell you, I've never seen Soldier. I wrote the draft and everything, but I haven't watched the movie yet. I'm planning to one of these days. But at any rate, that garbage dumping stuff, it was not just bodies they were dumping, they were dumping garbage, so I didn't quite see it as the same as Blade Runner, but I suppose there is a similarity. And ironically, we mentioned that we'd just been writing this TV thing. We've borrowed a little garbage dumping and put it in that, too. So (laughs) it must be some theme that appeals to us. I would like to thank David and Janet Peebles for doing the interview. Remember, come to the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street, June 8, 2019, at 2 p.m. to see 12 Monkeys, which is rated R. Today's music is the theme from 12 Monkeys by Paul Buckmaster. (laughs) ¶¶